Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Frederick the Great, Part 1. A.D. 1712 to 1786. The Prussian Power. The history of Frederick the Great is simply that of a man who committed an outrageous crime, the consequences of which pursued him in the maledictions and hostilities of Europe, and who fought bravely and heroically to rescue himself and country from the ruin which impended over him as a consequence of this crime. His heroism, his fertility of resources, his unflagging energy, and his amazing genius in overcoming difficulties won for him the admiration of that class who idolized strength and success, so that he stands out in history as a struggling gladiator who baffled all his foes. Not a dying gladiator on the arena of a pagan amphitheater, but more like a Judas Maccabeus, when hunted by the Syrian hosts, rising victorious and laying the foundation of a powerful monarchy. Indeed, his fame spread, irrespective of his cause and character, from one end of Christendom to the other. Not such a fame as endeared Gustavus Adolphus to the heart of nations for heroic efforts to save the Protestant religion, but such a fame as the successful generals of ancient Rome won by adding territories to a warlike state, regardless of all the principles of right and wrong. Such a career is suggestive of grand moral lessons, and it is to teach these lessons that I describe a character for whom I confess I feel but little sympathy, yet whom I am compelled to respect for his heroic qualities and great abilities. Frederick of Prussia was born in 1712 and had an unhappy childhood and youth from the caprices of a royal but disagreeable father, best known for his tall regiment of guards, a severe, austere, prejudiced, formal, narrow, and hypochondriacal old Pharisee, whose sole redeeming excellence was an avowed belief in God Almighty and in the orthodox doctrines of the Protestant Church. In 1740, this rigid, exacting, unsympathetic king died, and his son, Frederick, who had been subjected to the severest discipline, restraints, annoyances, and humiliations, ascended to the throne and became the third king of Prussia at the age of 28. His kingdom was a small one, being then about one quarter of its present size. And here we pause for a moment to give a glance at the age in which he lived an age of great reactions, when the stirring themes and issues of the seventeenth century were substituted for mockeries, levities, and infidelities, when no fierce protests were made except those of Voltaire against the Jesuits, when an abandoned woman ruled France as the mistress of an enervated monarch, when Spain and Italy were sunk in lethargic forgetfulness, Austria was priest-ridden, and England was governed by a ring of selfish, lauded proprietors when there was no market enterprise but the slave trade, when no department of literature or science was adorned by original genius, and when England had no broader statesman than Walpole, no abler churchman than Warburton, no greater poet than Pope. There was a general indifference to lofty speculation. A materialistic philosophy was in fashion, not openly atheistic, but arrogant and pretentious, whose only power was in sarcasm and mockery like the satires of Lucian, extinguishing faith, godless and yet boastful, an Epicureanism such as Socrates attacked and Paul rebuked. It found its greatest exponent in Voltaire, the oracle and idol of intellectual Europe. In short, it was an age when general cynicism and reckless abandonment to pleasure marked the upper classes, an age which produced Chesterfield, as godless a man as Voltaire himself. In this period of religious infidelity, moral torpor, fashionable mediocrity, unthinking pleasure-seeking, and royal orgies, when the people were spurned, 
insuited and burdened, Frederick ascends an absolute throne. He is a young and fashionable philosopher. He professes to believe in nothing that ages of inquiry and study are supposed to have settled. He even ridicules the religious principles of his father. He ardently adopts everything which claims to be a novelty, but is not learned enough to know that what he supposes to be new has been exploded over and over again. He is liberal and tolerant, but does not see the logical sequence of the very opinions he endorses. He is also what is called an accomplished man, since he can play on an instrument and amuse a dinner party by jokes and stories. He builds a magnificent theater and collects statues, pictures, snuff-boxes, and old china. He welcomes to his court not stern thinkers, but sneering and amusing philosophers. He employs in his service both Catholics and Protestants alike, since he holds in contempt the religion of both. He is free from animosities and friendships, and neither punishes those who are his enemies nor rewards those who are his friends. He apes reform, but shackles the press. He appoints able men in his service, but only those who will be his unscrupulous tools. He has a fine physique, and therefore is unceasingly active. He flies from one part of his kingdom to another, not to examine morals or education or the state of the people, but to inspect fortresses and to collect camps. To such a man the development of the resources of his kingdom— the reform of abuses, and educational projects are of secondary importance. He gives his primary attention to raising and equipping armies, having in view the extension of his kingdom by aggressive and unjustifiable wars. He cares little for domestic joys or the society of women, and is incapable of sincere friendship. He has no true admiration for intellectual excellence, although he patronizes literary lions. He is incapable of any sacrifice except for his troops, who worship him, since their interests are identical with his own. In the camp or in the field he spends his time, amusing himself occasionally with a society of philosophers as cynical as himself. He has dreams and visions of military glory, which to him is the highest and greatest on this earth, Charles the Twelfth being his model of a hero. With such views he enters upon a memorable career. His first important public act as king is a seizure of part of the territory of the Bishop of Liege, which he claims is belonging to Prussia. The old bishop is indignant and amazed, but is obliged to submit to a robbery which disgusts Christendom, but is not of sufficient consequence to set it in a blaze. The next thing he does, of historical importance, is to seize Silesia, a province which belongs to Austria and contains about 20,000 square miles, a fertile and beautiful province nearly as large as his own kingdom. It is the highest table land of Germany, girt around with mountains, hard to attack and easy to defend. So rapid and secret are his movements that this unsuspecting and undefended country is overrun by his veteran soldiers as easily as Louis the Fourteenth overran Flanders and Holland, and with no better excuse than the French king had. This outrage was an open insult to Europe as well as a great wrong to Maria Theresa, supposed by him to be a feeble woman who could not resent the injury. But in this woman he found the great enemy of his life, a lioness deprived of her whelps, whose wailing was so piteous and so savage that she aroused Europe from lethargy and made coalitions which shook it to its center. At first she simply rallied her own troops and fought single-handed to recover her lost and most valued province. But Frederick, with marvelous celerity and ability, got possession of the Silesian fortresses. The bloody battle of Malwitz, 1741, secured his prey, and he returned in triumph to his capital to abide the issue of events. It is not easy to determine whether this atrocious crime, which astonished Europe, was a result of his early passion for military glory or the inauguration of a policy of aggression and aggrandizement. 
but it was the signal of an explosion of European politics, which ended in one of the most bloody wars of modern times. It was, says Carlyle, the little stone broken loose from the mountain, hitting others big and little, which again hit others with their leaping and rolling, till the whole mountainside was in motion under law of gravity. Maria Theresa appeals to her Hungarian nobles, with her infant in her arms, at a diet of the nation, and sends her envoys to every friendly court. She offers her unscrupulous enemy the Duchy of Limburg, and two hundred thousand pounds to relinquish his grasp on Silesia. It is like the offer of Darius to Alexander, and is spurned by the Prussian robber. It is not Limburg he wants, nor money, but Silesia, which he resolves to keep because he wants it, and at any hazard, even were he to jeopardize his own hereditary dominions. The peace of Breslau gives him a temporary leisure, and he takes the waters of Aiken and discusses philosophy. He is uneasy, but jubilant, for he has nearly doubled the territory and population of Prussia. His subjects proclaim him a hero with immense paeans. Doubtless, too, he now desires peace, just as Louis Fourteenth did after he had conquered Holland, and as Napoleon did when he had seated his brothers on the old thrones of Europe. But there can be no lasting peace after such outrageous wickedness. The angered kings and princes of Europe are to become the instruments of eternal justice. They listen to the eloquent cries of the Austrian empress and prepare for war, to punish the audacious robber who disturbs the peace of the world and insults all other nationalities. But they are not yet ready for effective war. The storm does not at once break out. The Austrians, however, will not wait, and the Second Silesian War ensues, in which Saxony joins Austria. Again is Frederick successful over the combined forces of these two powers, and he retains his stolen province. He is now regarded as a world hero, for he has fought bravely against vastly superior forces, and is received in Berlin with unbounded enthusiasm. He renews his studies in philosophy, courts literary celebrities, reorganizes his army, and collects forces for a renewed encounter, which he foresees. He has ten years of repose and preparation, during which he is lauded and nattered, yet retaining simplicity of habits, sleeping but five hours a day, finding time for state dinners, flute-playing, and operas, of all which he is fond. For he was doubtless a man of culture, social, well-read if not profound, witty, inquiring, and without any striking defects, save tyranny, ambition, parsimony, dissimulation, and lying. It was during those ten years of rest and military preparation that Voltaire made his memorable visit, his third and last, to Potsdam and Berlin, thirty-two months of alternate triumph and humiliation. No literary man ever had so successful and brilliant a career as this fortunate and lauded Frenchman, the oracle of all salons, the arbiter of literary fashions, a dictator in the realm of letters, with amazing fecundity of genius directed into all fields of labor, poet, historian, dramatist, and philosopher, writing books enough to load a cart, and all of them admired and extolled, all of them scattered over Europe, read by all nations, a marvelous worker of unbounded wit and unexampled popularity, whose greatest literary merit was in the transcendent excellence of his style, for which chiefly he is immortal. A great artist, rather than an original and profound genius whose ideas form the basis of civilizations. The King of Prussia formed an ardent friendship for this King of Letters, based on admiration rather than respect, invited him to his court, extolled and honored him, and lavished on him all that he could bestow, outside of political distinction. But no worldly friendship could stand such a test as both were subjected to, since they at last comprehended each other's character and designs. 
Voltaire perceived the tyranny, the ambition, the heartlessness, the egotism, and the exactions of his royal patron, and despised him while he flattered him. And Frederick, on his part, saw the hollowness, the meanness, the suspicion, the irritability, the pride, the insincerity, the tricks, the ingratitude, the baseness, the lies of his distinguished guest, and their friendship ended in utter vanity. What friendship can last without mutual respect? The friendship of Frederick and Voltaire was hopelessly broken in spite of the remembrance of mutual admiration and happy hours. It was patched up and mended like a broken vase, but it could not be restored. How sad, how mournful, how humiliating is a broken friendship or an alienated love. It is the falling away of the foundations of the soul, the disappearance forever of what is most to be prized on earth, its celestial certitudes. A beloved friend may die, but we are consoled in view of the fact that the friendship may be continued in heaven. The friend is not lost to us. But when a friendship or a love is broken, there is no continuance of it through eternity. It is the gloomiest thing to think of in this world. But Frederick was too busy and preoccupied a man to mourn along for a departed joy. He was absorbed in preparations for war. The sword of Damocles was suspended over his head, and he knew it better than any other man in Europe. He knew it from his spies and emissaries. Though he had enjoyed ten years' peace, he knew that peace was only a truce, that the nations were arming in behalf of the injured empress, that so great a crime as the seizure of Cilicia must be visited with a penalty, that there was no escape for him except in a tremendous life-and-death struggle, which was to be the trial of his life, that defeat was more than probable since the forces in preparation against him were overwhelming. The curses of the civilized world still pursued him, and in his retreat at San Susi, he had no rest, and hence he became irritable and suspicious. The clouds of the political atmosphere were filled with thunderbolts, ready to fall upon him and crush him at any moment. Indeed, nothing could arrest the long-gathering storm. It broke out with unprecedented fury in the spring of 1756. Austria, Russia, Sweden, Saxony, and France were combined to ruin him the most powerful coalition of the European powers seen since the Thirty Years' War. His only ally was England, an ally not so much to succor him as to humble France, and hence her aid was timid and incompetent. Thus began the famous Seven Years' War, during which France lost her colonial possessions and was signally humiliated at home, a war which developed the genius of the elder Pitt and placed England in the proud position of mistress of the ocean, a war marked by the largest array of forces which Europe had seen since the time of Charles V, in which 600,000 men were marshaled under different leaders and nations to crush a man who had insulted Europe and defied the law of nations and the laws of God. The coalition represented 100 millions of people with inexhaustible resources. Now, it was the memorable resistance of Frederick II to this vast array of forces, and his successful retention of the province he had seized, which gave him his chief claim as a hero, and it was his patience, his fortitude, his energy, his fertility of resources, and the enthusiasm with which he inspired his troops, even after the most discouraging and demoralizing defeats, that won for him the universal admiration as a man which he lived to secure in spite of all his defects and crimes. We admire the resources and dexterity of an outlawed bandit, but we should remember he is a bandit still. And we confound all the laws which hold society together when we cover up the iniquity of a great crime by the successes which have apparently baffled justice. Frederick II, by stealing Silesia and thus provoking a great war of untold and indescribable miseries, is entitled to anything but admiration. 
whatever may have been his military genius and i am amazed that so great a man as carlyle with all his hatred of shams and his clear perceptions of justice and truth should have whitewashed such a robber i cannot conceive how the severest critic of the age should have spent the best years of his life in apologies for so bad a man if his own philosophy had not become radically unsound based on the abominable doctrine that the end justifies the means and that an outward success is a test of right far different was carlyle's treatment of cromwell frederick had no such cause as cromwell it was simply his own or his country's aggrandizement by any means or by any sword he could lay hold of the chief merit of carlyle's history is his impartiality and accuracy in describing the details of the contest the cause of the contest he does not sufficiently reprobate and all his sympathies seem to be with the unscrupulous robber who fights heroically rather than with indignant europe outraged by his crimes but we cannot separate crime from its consequences and all the reverses the sorrows the perils the hardships the humiliations the immense losses the dreadful calamities through which prussia had to pass which wrung even the heart of frederick with an anguish were only a merited retribution the seven years war was a king hunt in which all the forces of the surrounding monarchies gathered around the doomed man making his circle smaller and smaller and which would certainly have ended in his utter ruin had he not been rescued by events as unexpected as they were unparalleled had some great and powerful foe been converted suddenly into a friend at a critical moment napoleon another unscrupulous robber might not have been defeated at waterloo or died on a rock in the ocean but providence it would seem who rules the fate of war had some inscrutable reason for the rescue of prussia under frederick and the humiliation of france under napoleon the brunt of the war fell of course upon austria so that as the two nations were equally german it had many of the melancholy aspects of a civil war but austria was catholic and prussia was protestant and had austria succeeded germany possibly today would have been united under an irresistible catholic imperialism and there would have been no german empire whose capital is berlin the austrians in this contest fought bravely and ably under prince karl and marshal don who were no means competitors with the king of prussia for military laurels but the austrians fought on the offensive and the prussians on the defensive the former were obliged to maneuver on the circumference the latter in the center of the circle the austrians in order to recover silesia were compelled to cross high mountains whose passes were guarded by prussian soldiers the war began in offensive operations and ended in defensive the most terrible enemy that frederick had next to austria was russia ruled then by elizabeth who had the deepest sympathy with maria theresa but when she died affairs took a new turn frederick was then on the very verge of ruin was as they say about to be bagged when the new emperor of russia conceived a great personal admiration for his genius and heroism the russian enmity was converted to friendship and the czar became an ally instead of a foe the aid which the saxons gave to maria theresa availed but little the population chiefly and traditionally protestant probably sympathized with prussia more than with austria although the elector himself was catholic that inglorious monarch who resembled in his gallantries louis the fifteenth and in his dilettante tastes leo the tenth he is chiefly known for the number of his concubines and his dresden gallery of pictures the aid which the french gave was really imposing so far as numbers make efficient armies but the french were not the warlike people in the reign of louis the fifteenth that they were under henry the fourth or napoleon bonaparte 
they fought without the stimulus of national enthusiasm without a cause as part of a great machine they never have been successful in war without the inspiration of a beloved cause this war had no especial attraction or motive for them what was it to a frenchman so absorbed with themselves whether a hohenzollern or a Habsburg reigned in germany hence the great armies which the government of france sent to the aid of maria theresa were without spirit and were not even marshalled by able generals in fact the french seemed more intent on crippling england than in crushing frederick the war had immense complications though france and england were drawn into it yet both france and england fought more against each other than for the parties who had summoned them to their rescue england was frederick's ally but her aid was not great directly she did not furnish him with many troops she sent subsidies instead which enabled him to continue the contest but these were not as great as he expected or had reason to expect with all the money he received from walpole or pitt he was reduced to the most desperate straits one thing was remarkable in that long war of seven years which strained every nerve and taxed every energy of prussia it was carried on by frederick in hard cash he did not run in debt he always had enough on hand in coin to pay for all expenses but then his subjects were most severely taxed and the soldiers were poorly paid if the same economy he used in that war of seven years had been exercised by our government in its late war we should not have had any national debt at all at the close of the war although we probably should have suspended specie payments it would not be easy or interesting to attempt to compress the details of a long war of seven years into a single lecture the records of war have great uniformity devastation taxes suffering loss of life and of property except by the speculators and government agents the flight of literature general demoralization the lowering of the tone of moral feeling the ascendancy of unscrupulous men the exaltation of military talents general grief at the loss of friends fiendish exultation over victories alternated with depressing despondency in view of defeats the impoverishment of a nation on the whole and the sickening conviction which fastens on the mind after the first excitement is over of a great waste of life and property for which there is no return and which sometimes a whole generation cannot restore nothing is so dearly purchased as the laurels of the battlefield nothing is so great a delusion and folly as military glory to the eye of a christian or philosopher it is purchased by the tears and blood of millions and is rebuked by all that is grand in human progress only degraded and demoralized peoples can ever rejoice in war and when it is not undertaken for a great necessity it fills the world with bitter imprecations it is cruel and hard and unjust in its nature and utterly antagonistic to civilization its greater evils are indeed overruled satan is ever rebuked and baffled by a benevolent providence but war is always a curse and a calamity in its immediate results and in its ultimate results also unless waged in defense of some immortal cause it must be confessed war is terribly exciting the eyes of the civilized world were concentrated on frederick the second during this memorable period and most people anticipated his overthrow they read everywhere of his marchings and countermarchings his sieges and battles his hairbreadth escapes and his renewed exertions from the occupation of saxony to the battle of torgau in this war he was sometimes beaten as at colin but he gained three memorable victories one over the french at rossbach the second over the austrians at luthen and the third over the russians at zorndorf the most bloody of all his battles and he gained these victories by outflanking his attack being the form of a wedge 
learning by the example of the Epimenides, a device which led to new tactics and proclaimed Frederick a master of the art of war. But in these battles he simply showed himself to be a great general. It was not until his reverses came that he showed himself a great man, or earned the sympathy which Europe felt for a humiliated monarch, putting forth Herculean energies to save his crown and kingdom. His easy and great victories in the first year of the war simply saved him from annihilation. They were not great enough to secure peace. Although thus far he was a conqueror, he had no peace, no rest, and but little hope. His enemies were so numerous and powerful that they could send large reinforcements. He could draw but few. In time it was apparent that he would be destroyed, whatever his skill and bravery. Had not the Empress Elizabeth died, he would have been conquered and prostrated. After his defeat at Hochrich, he was obliged to dispute his ground inch by inch, compelled to hide his grief from his soldiers, financially straitened and utterly forlorn. But for a timely subsidy from England, he would have been desperate. The fatal battle of Kunersdorf in his fourth campaign, when he lost 20,000 men, almost drove him to despair and evil fortune continued to pursue him in his fifth campaign, in which he lost some of his strongest fortresses, and Silesia was opened to his enemies. At one time he had only six days' provision. The world marveled how he held out. Then England deserted him. He made incredible exertions to avert his doom, everlasting marches, incessant perils, no comforts or luxuries as a king, only sorrows, privations, sufferings enduring more labors than his soldiers, with restless anxieties and blasted hopes. In his despair and humiliation it is said he recognized God Almighty. In his chastisements and misfortunes, apparently on the very brink of destruction, and with the piercing cries of misery which reached his ears from every corner of his dominions, he must at least have recognized a retribution. Still, his indomitable will remained. His pride and his self-reliance never deserted him. He would have died rather than have yielded up Silesia until wrested from him. At last the Battle of Torgau, fought in the night, and the death of the Empress of Russia removed the overhanging clouds, and he was enabled to contend with Austria unassisted by France and Russia. But if Maria Theresa could not recover Silesia, aided by the great monarchies of Europe, what could she do without their aid? So peace came at last, when all parties were wearied and exhausted, and Frederick retained his stolen province at the sacrifice of 180,000 men, and the decline of one-tenth of the whole population of his kingdom and its complete impoverishment, from which it did not recover for nearly 100 years. Prussia, though a powerful military state, became and remained one of the poorest countries of Europe. And I can remember, when it was rare to see there, except in the houses of the rich, either a silver fork or a silver spoon, to say nothing of the cheap and frugal fare of the great mass of the people, and their comfortless kind of life, with hardly any physical luxuries except tobacco and beer. It is surprising how, in a poor country, Frederick could have sustained such an exhaustive war without incurring a national debt. Perhaps it was not as easy in those times for kings and states to run into debt as it is now. One of the great refinements of advancing civilization is that we are permitted to bequeath our burdens to future generations. Time will only show whether this is the wisest course. It is certainly not a wise thing for individuals to do. He who enters on the possession of a heavily mortgaged estate is an embarrassed, perhaps impoverished man. Frederick, at least, did not leave debts for posterity to pay. He preferred to pay as he went along, whatever were the difficulties. End of section 20.